Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Super stoked for tonight's guest. This is his second appearance on the show, and he's back with another plethora of pop culture. Um, right now, we're recording this in October, but I was at Home Depot the other day, and I was surprised to see the shelves completely stocked with Christmas items. And, uh, it got me excited because I've always enjoyed um, the holiday season, and I've always enjoyed pop culture as it relates towards Christmas. And there's something special about that growing up, you know, like uh, I grew up in the eighties and a lot of like our culture was submerged into the idea of Christmas and like, you know, Christmas is a universal thing across the world celebrated by people. You don't even have to be a practitioner of uh, religion to experience Christmas. You can just decorate if you'd like. And uh, in general, there's so much that goes into this um, as far as pop culture goes. It's not just, movies, TV, there's newspapers, so many different things go into the, the overall like description of like what you think in your mind of Christmas. And uh, tonight's guest, he's done this before with um, uh, other uh, topics, but his new book, which ships on November 4th, titled Holly Jolly, Celebrating Christmas Past and Pop Culture, is an amazing, amazing piece. I had uh, the privilege of taking a look at it uh, over the weekend, and it is just wall-to-wall covered with all things Christmas. Amazing. Um, I'm super stoked to have him back on the show. I met him when I was just about maybe four or five years old. He actually taught me how to draw. And now we're continuing our friendship well into our adult years. Please welcome back to the show, Mark Boger. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be back in the lounge. How are you, brother? I'm good, man. I'm good, you know? I, you know what? I still I forgot one piece of Halloween decoration, but we'll leave it up uh, there. Leave it up there. It's, yeah, it's, man. It's, it's perennial. I, uh, I love the book and I love the cover. The cover's right behind you, Holly Jolly. It is such a colorful, colorful arrangement. And I, I can't stress enough that people really should go out today and order it because, I mean, it's going to ship the day after the election. You may need some sort of device to keep you uh, sane in your house, uh, something to entertain you from all the madness that's going on around you. My first question for you is how did you, um, did you always have this in your mind that you were going to create some sort of, uh, like, you know, compendium of like all this wonderful Christmas stuff? Well, no, I, uh, I, I was just fishing for, for the next idea and, and, and it hit me and, and I'm really glad it did. The thing, thing about the topic of Christmas, and I think you alluded to it uh, at the top, is that I can't think of another topic that uh, so much uh, media and, and creativity has, has been uh, focused on. I mean, there are, you know, there's Christmas food, Christmas movies, Christmas songs, hymns and carols and popular music. Uh, there, you know, movies, television, animation, comic books. Um, you know, it's it just, it's, it's endless. Uh, and, uh, the, and the, it's, it, it's something that, as you said, you, you don't have to be a Christian. You can be, um, 
a snake handler or a, a Reagan, Reagan Democrat or a Kennedy Republican. You could be anything and, and, uh, and love Christmas. And uh, that's the great thing about it. Um, and everybody has a favorite Christmas something, you know, a favorite Christmas movie or a favorite Christmas delicacy, you know, um, <clears throat> Little Debbie's Christmas tree cakes, whatever it is. Oh, my God, I forgot about this cakes. Yeah. It is true. It is very true that you like what you just said there. I mean, like it encapsulates like, so many different things. I mean, uh, I mean, Christmas is such a, um, I mean, it's, a, it's the most wonderful time of year, right? I mean, like it has that, that allure to it. And like, do you think that like the, the way Christmas makes you feel is a direct result of its inclusion in pop culture? Absolutely. Um, it's uh because when you, in those formative years, like you were talking about when we first met in 89, and I remember even at uh, four or five, you were a Batman freak, you know, and so was I. I was a 31-year-old Batman freak. But um, the, uh, the stuff that hits you when you're younger stays with you the rest of your life. It's like your golden age from the time you become aware, four or five, until you know, 10, 12, until you become like a rebellious teenager, yeah. all that stuff that you kind of believe it, it, it's, it's, it makes an indelible imprint on you. So, so yeah, uh, you know, as a child believing in Santa Claus and, and then like thinking like Santa Claus is going to put a captain action under the Christmas tree and I, and I got to run down and, and uh, find captain action, you know, that stays with me. I love captain action to this day. All that kind of stuff stays with you. And as it does with um, songs that you hear, movies that you see, TV mm -hmm. specials, you know, you probably have a favorite, animated tv christmas special yeah it, it, just touching upon what you said right there like the the human subconsciousness and how is it affected by like you know these uh inclusions with like for me it was always about the color you know like um that santa claus red color like you know and i'm speaking about uh i know we're, we'll jump around a bit here but one of the things that um i mean for me too to answer your question it, it basically was a vhs tape of all the um animated classics, which is covered brilliantly in the book, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, uh, like just like that stop motion animation stuff. But for me, the early memory, and I never knew the gentleman's name until I read the book was, uh, and excuse me if I'm saying his name wrong, it's Haddon Sunbloom. Haddon Sunblom, yeah. So uh, is he, he's the one that's, that is um, Sunblom, excuse me. Yeah. Um, so he's the one who is credited with creating that classic Coca-Cola Santa Claus look, if I'm not mistaken, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the one, yeah, that's the one that we took to heart. I mean, this guy on the cover here is, um, it's the best of both worlds because I would, I would not be legally allowed to put a Coca-Cola hat and sunblom on my cover, but this is from a Dell comic book from 1958, and he was ripping off had in sunblom very nicely. Oh, wow. It looks, it looks like a sunblom. So people said to me, I've seen that image somewhere. And I'm like, well, not really, you, but, but it's, uh, it's a ripoff of Haddon Sunblom. But no, he, he, really, he really solidified it finally. Um, you know, Thomas Nass was a political cartoonist who uh, was the first one to really popularize the look of Santa Claus with, um, with beard and the, the white beard and the, and the outfit and, um, but, but it, still, it still was really old-fashioned looking. But in the early 30s, when Coca-Cola commissioned Haddon Sunblom uh, to uh, paint Santa Claus, and he put this beautiful painterly glow on him and painted him through, uh, I, I believe, the 60s, um, that's really what crept into our, our collective consciousness. And that's crazy because, I mean, if he, if he painted him up into the 60s, so that's 
I mean, 30 years later, I pick up on this version of Santa Claus. And to me, I thought that Santa Claus made Coca-Cola in the North Pole. I thought that Coca-Cola cans were coming off the lines, else were drinking it, just feeling great. You know what I mean? Like I associated Santa Claus with a, a soft drink that later I found out was terrible for you. But to me, as a child, I thought that Coca-Cola was a gift from Santa Claus. Santa Claus did not permit the elves to drink Coca-Cola for two reasons. <laughs> Diabetes wasn't covered under their medical plan. And it, it, the, the spike is great because you're like making toys like crazy. But then when, 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 the, uh, when the drop hits you, you know, oh, yeah. uh, you, you get real sluggish. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's a very huge drop off. But yeah, for me, I mean, it was just synonymous growing up. And like, the, like you were saying, too, about the idea of Santa Claus bringing like your favorite toy to the Christmas tree and like, you know, awaiting it. Uh, for me, I mean, there was a lot of um, Coca-Cola Santa Claus, but I was also heavily influenced by J.C. Penney's catalog, which kids today, I mean, like, you can go on the Internet and look for anything you want on Amazon. But this catalog used to come in the mail. And you would open it up and you would see all the toys and like they would have all the landscapes of the toys and, you know, uh, the different things you could range Batman or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into. But Santa Claus and Christmas, they kind of go hand in hand with um, consumerism, you know, in America. Absolutely. And, absolutely. And it's weird, too, because if you, if you, if you look at the, uh, the psychology of it, you know, I mean, there's two different ways to approach it. I mean, Christmas is like, you know the spirit of giving, it's a uh, family coming together, but it also is really, really entrenched in consumerism. It's a and, triumph of marketing. Uh, yes. about, it's yes. a triumph of marketing because they get you when you're young, you know, they, yes. they, they get you to believe this shit stuff from the time you're a baby and then you just buy in and then you do it the rest of your life. Oh, and, so, yes. and so at that improbable part of the year where we're just about to uh, encounter a long, dark, uh, lonely winter, we're like buying food and, you know, presents and uh, mm -hmm. driving around, you know. So, so yeah, it's a triumph of marketing, definitely. It is. A, uh, I also, you know, on a tangent, uh, did you know that uh, Sigmund Freud's, and don't quote me on this, it, you have to like Google it, but Sigmund Freud's uh, nephew is credited with um, originating consumer science. He was one of the ones who went to the major companies. It was like, you need to get into people's minds and let them know that they need this beauty product. I heard it on a podcast recently. It just popped into my mind. Um, one of the things I love about the book, as I mentioned before, it's so colorful, but like the collection of, you know, various different things. And I don't want to go into too many spoilers because I really want people to buy the book, but you have collected so many different aspects of uh, Christmas past. Uh, the toys and game section, I, I spent a lot of time on just because I was fascinated with so many different things of yesteryear that I didn't know about. And I picked one of them that I wanted to ask you about, and that was the, uh, what did I get that down at? The, the cookie, I'm sorry. Uh, what, oh, it was the one, oh yeah, the cookie camera, what, like <laughs> photo developer, like this was a thing. So, so it was a cookie camera, like explain to the audience what that was. It, it, was, it was called cookie camera and cookie uh, and camera both began with a K. And it was, um, it was like there was this cartoonist named uh, Rube Goldberg who used to do all the kind of contraptions. I'm talking about like turn of the century Sunday funnies. And a, a game like Mousetrap was based on Rube Goldberg. And Cookie Camera kind of was too. It was just, you know, uh, you, put, you put it together and uh, there's really nothing kooky about it except for the way it looked. My brother, uh, one Christmas, was uh, my little brother Brian was just freaked on, on getting Cookie Camera. He couldn't wait. 
And it was such a complicated uh, device that uh, we didn't put it together on Christmas morning. We waited a couple of days till we had this Christmas party with all my aunts and my Irish side aunts and uncles. And two of my uncles, one of them was a, a plumber and one of them was a rental truck agency boss. So these were, got, you know, capable guys spent like, you know, all this time putting together this complicated kooky camera. And it really was just a glorified um, Polaroid camera. Oh, wow. And, okay. and it didn't work. Uh, my, my, the pictures, when you finally peeled it, they, they were black. They, we tried it, they, we, they tried it several times uh, that night in um, December of 68, whenever it was. So what my brother learned was like a, uh, uh, it was like a lesson in, in navigating disappointment, but it's still like a, it's still like a great Christmas memory, you know? Yeah. I, I'd never seen it before until I saw the book. And I, I mean, I love the package. It's a picture of a kid with like the awesome looking negative and he's like, look, I got it, you know, but um, the other thing too, that I, I, I forgot about that you collect so well is like, you know, like when you're first introduced to Christmas, it comes in the form of, literature most of the time um you know whereas it could be somebody reading the night before christmas or for me it was a series of little golden house books and the walt disney classics and i forgot about how the spine looked and like you know that golden like you know bind to it and just that special feel of the book i i believe that they still have uh these books in print i think i have some for my kid as well but i mean to me that those stories were real, man. That wasn't some human writing. And that was like straight from the North pole. What was your experience growing up with those books? Well, um, I, I don't, I, there's a lot of, there's pages of golden books and, yeah. uh, in the, in Holly Jolly. I, um, mostly as a collector later in life is when I caught up with them. So I have, uh, like the Mickey Mouse club one. And, uh, yeah. uh, I have, uh, I have some, some really obscure ones. I just buy them when I see them. Um, so and I was never much of a reader, although that you don't have to be much of a reader to read a golden book. But um, I guess as far as reading goes, uh, my my thing with Christmas was um, was uh, you know D Dickens uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah. But even then, I was only like, is first I fell in love with the Alistair Sim 1951 book, mm -hmm. then I backtracked to the uh, to, to the uh, Dickens. Same thing I did with Sherlock Holmes. I, I like yeah. as a grade school kid, I fell in love with the Basil Rathbone. Uh, 40s Holmes films, and then I, for Christmas, I got my favorite book, The Complete Sherlock Holmes, in 1972 when I was still in grade school, and then that was where I was introduced. I, I'm still not a great reader, you know, but uh, I, I think you are. But uh, and I know, but I, I, I gotta be honest with you, I it, it depends on like the environment, really. I sometimes I you know with, with a kid and a, now a puppy, it's impossible to read. Um, but I did read this uh, this book that you're putting out, and. Uh, one of the things you touch upon brilliantly too is the fact that in 1843 he writes this ghost story, which everybody knows. This Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, I'm talking about, writes this tale. And like you know, like right now it's the month of October and it's so close to Halloween and then Christmas. And you think about you know merging these things together. And it happened years later with Tim Burton with The Nightmare Before Christmas. But like Charles Dickens was the original provocateur of mashing these two genres together. To me, it's crazy that that happens so, I mean, like this happened before, um, just before the gold rush too. I mean, like this is like way back. Charles Dickens put this book out and basically, you know, it, it is a tale that is still being told today. Did you think when he was writing it, he knew that this would have a lasting impression? Well, no, um, I mean, I, uh, 
I, I believe he, w- he was uh, looking for a hit because his previous book tanked. But I don't know that from uh, stalwart research. I know it from watching the movie The Man Who Invented Christmas, although I think uh, my research backed that up. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, he puts that apology at the beginning. Uh, he puts a little apology at the beginning saying, like, I hope, uh, you know, this, I hope this doesn't bum, bum you out, you know, um, uh, and uh, I hope it haunts your house, uh, you know, uh, gladly, something like that. And yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. It did. It, it worked. It, it's, it sold out. I mean, it came came out late in December, but it just like the first run sold out. And uh, it, ever since, I mean, I, I dare say it might be heresy. I think it's the most uh, famous Christmas tale. I guess I have to add the phrase uh, since the New Testament, but uh, uh, <laughs> but yeah. it, it is it, it's been ad- adapted so many ways. I mean, in and uh, literal adapt- adaptations where they call it the Christmas Carol, and even even like little glimmers like the abominable snow monster and Rudolph was, was, was kind of a Grinch character that got redeemed and uh, Lionel Barrymore in uh, uh, Frank Capra's uh, it's a wonderful life. It's definitely Scrooge. I say Grinch. I oh, mean, yeah, you're Scrooge. Right, yeah. And although he doesn't get redeemed and, and the Grinch is, is a Scrooge. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it, it just, it recurs ever since it's been a recurring theme. For me, it was so difficult to uh, like, as a child, I, I, I thought that there, I thought Boris Karloff wrote uh, The Grinch. I didn't think that Dr. Seuss wrote like To me, like I saw the cartoon first and I was like, Dad, whose voice is that? That voice is scary. And he's like, oh, then let me show you who else. For me, it was just, you know what I mean? Like I thought for sure that that was the case, you know? It is narrated by Boris Karloff, right? Am I, I'm not mistaken. Ab- right? Absolutely. It was narrated by Boris Karloff and he also did the voice of The Grinch. And one cool little thing about that is he was a master of this by then because he had been reading... Um, he'd been doing a radio show uh, since the 50s where he was reading uh, aloud Reader's Digest stories. And he did a lot of uh, children's albums. I, I have one called The Reluctant Dragon. So, so this was a, a medium that was very familiar to him, was, was reading these stories. It had really nothing to do with, with horror. Chuck Jones really wanted him. Chuck Jones was the yep. uh, mastermind be- behind the uh, animated adaptation of Ted Geisel's uh, book. And um, it, it was a masterstroke. And one of the cool things about it is Karloff um, read, reads, uh, he, he kind of, you know, code switches. He'll, he'll have that grandfatherly voice when he's talking, when he's using, doing the narration. And then he, th- and he gets into like a monstery Grinch voice. Plus, uh, audio wise, they put a filter on his voice as the Grinch. So, so you, know it's, you know it's him and you don't know it when you're a kid. And one thing I just want to add, Bob, uh, I don't want to ramble, but uh, all Carlos' career, what, what made it broke him was the 1931 Frankenstein. That's what broke him into the big time. And so that was sort of the specter that clung to him all his life. And, and when you hear Boris Karloff, that's what you think of. He recorded that Grinch in, in 66. He died in early 69. He never lived to see what, uh, what, where the Grinch went. I believe that Karloff, is that the Grinch is is more of what people think of Karloff for than Frankenstein even. Because you ask little kids, mm. what's Frankenstein? They know the monster, but they don't know the 1931 film. Everybody knows that Grinch special. Everybody knows that Grinch special, yeah. It's a good point. I, I wonder, uh, it is a good, yeah, later in, if he would have lived on to see the legacy. But yeah, that, that's another uh, cornerstone of Christmas is the Grinch. Um, one of the things, that, I mean, you know I love comics. I love Marvel, DC, anything. Uh, Christmas back in the day was so prominent on these covers, you know, like 
you collect so many different things as far as action comics, uh, Detective Comics, Batman, uh, a couple of ones I've never even seen before, which if you purchase the book, you'll be uh, delighted to see. Christmas was so, like, you don't see that, you know, you don't see Santa Claus hanging out with uh, Batman and Superman in 2020 now. But back in the day, they were all over the covers, you know, like, it, it seemed to me that during that time in America, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, you know what I mean? There's so much, you know, I mean, post-World War II, you know, I mean, I, I just spoke to somebody the other day about Captain America and how he fought the Nazis and, and like, the comic books, and they were like, what? And I'm like, go back and look. I mean, like, there's a lot of stuff, I mean, like, that these books, like, try to present. How, what did you, how do you feel, like, uh, DC Comics and Marvel and all the, you know, other replications of it in comics, how do you feel they presented Santa Claus? Well, it, it, it's charming. It's DC more than Marvel. Because <clears throat> don't DC, forget, yeah. DC, Why DC, is that? well, DC goes all the way all the way back to um, the 30s. The, uh, the first issue of uh, Detective Comics came out in, um, I think it was 36. <clears throat> Batman debuted in 39. Yep. And, and, it's, and, and it is a straight through line for, for DC. They were called national periodicals, but it, it's a straight through line. Whereas with Marvel, it, it, was, um, it was Atlas. It was, um, uh, I forget the name of the company off, offhand. And it, the, but the Marvel age of comics really began in 61 when Stanley and Jack Kirby put yes, out the Fantastic yes. Four. So and by then it was like a little late to have Santa on the cover with, uh, you know, Spider-Man or I guess Richard. Yeah. So they would do it in um, special editions, like special digest Marvel would, but DC had Superman meet Santa Claus and Sandman meet Santa Claus. And um, you know, uh, Batman and, and Robin were on the cover with Santa in the forties. And, and so it, cause it, cause it was that like less jaded time, you know, it was a really illustrated time. I mean, I guess, I mean, some would say, yeah, as far as pop culture goes, yeah, it was presented that way, but I imagine there still was, you know, uh, many trials and tribulations in America, but, um, you know, the, those covers are so like, the colors are just amazing. Yeah. For me, I mean, I, I grew up in the eighties and nineties and I think that there was some sort of inclusion of Santa Claus in comics. Um, I remember one time the great Hulk fighting Superman or excuse me, the great Hulk fighting Santa Claus and Santa Claus was bad. So many different things. Also, too, I mean, like you have experience in this because when you and I first uh, struck up a friendship, you would send me a lot of uh, periodicals from newspapers and stuff like that. Santa Claus was all over the paper back in the day, and sometimes it would be in full-page spreads. Do you, like, when do you think that Santa Claus, like Santa Claus in today, like you don't really see him on commercials now because everything's, you know, geared towards being politically correct, woke culture and stuff like that. When do you think that Santa Claus was at his peak? Wow, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, I I guess I guess really well, is it because I grew up in the '60s? Um, it never seemed to be the same when I was a young adult. It's probably just because I always say everybody's golden age is you know from when they were from six to twelve or something. But it seems to me that. Um, that's where it got really jaded because the sixties, you know, all the grooviness came in and all the hippies and everything. So, so things were changing, but it took a while for the mainstream to catch up, you know? Yeah. So, so um, I think that once, uh, uh, once that jadedness kind of started setting in that, that was uh, the, the seed that was planted in the sixties, that's when, um, uh, you know, uh, Santa kind of, you know, almost like even the mainstream is acknowledging it. This isn't true, you know, but, but 
adults were flat out lying to us from the 60s back, like Santa Claus is coming to town, you know, you better be good. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I you. just, I just caught myself into a blunder. This is actually the third time because if you look right behind Mark, you can see that it, two books that he's covered with me before is The Monster Mash. And then we have Groovy, which is right below. That book, uh, you just mentioned about the heyday of, you know, being the golden age of when you're 6 to 12 growing up in the 60s. I love that book, Groovy. I also recommend that to my audience. You can pick that up on uh, Mark's website, which I'll put down below here in the comment section. Thank you, Robert. Uh, Groovy, uh, to go off on a side tangent, I just watched The Trial of the Chicago 7, and I really didn't know much about, uh, I mean, I knew a little bit about Abby Hoffman and stuff like that, but I mean, you may be correct in thinking that in, the, in that period of time in the 1960s, I would say before you know, the Vietnam War, it was probably the golden age of America. I mean, like, you know, America is relatively young, but in the 1960s, it seemed, you know, like before Vietnam, everything was popping off, you know, everyone was getting jobs and, you know, obviously the country still had its problems with um, cultural appropriation and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and, and you always, always have to think about <clears throat> racism and segregation whenever you wistfully look back because it, it, was, sucks, yeah. it was always there, you know? And uh, so that, that's like, so whenever, every, when people say like, I wish it could be like, leave it to Beaver again, I say, yeah, but Mayfield didn't have any black residents, you know? No, so no. like, you know, you always got to think of that, you know? Yeah. But, it's very upsetting that that's, I mean, I, it's something that I'm coming to terms with, you know, like looking back in, at, at my childhood too, as well as just like, you know, pop culture, you know, I mean, you would get this, this, uh, you know, version of it that the, the media wanted you to uh, see and it wasn't inclusive. And now it is. Um, uh, yesterday, I mean, when I was at Home Depot the other day, I mean, they had um, a white Santa Claus and a black Santa Claus right next to each other. And I thought that was appropriate. I thought about buying both, putting both in the front yard. Sending the you, know message. you know, it'll really, uh, I, I tried to get this to go viral with a hashtag, hashtag Macy Santa so white. Uh, but I don't know how to do the viral stuff that the kids today are doing, but I guess what I'm saying is what would really help is if in the Macy's parade, which, which isn't really happening this year because yeah. of the COVID, but if they, if they would have a black Santa, not a black Santa and a white Santa, but one Santa, yeah, black right. Santa sitting in that chair, waving everybody. That'd be great. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's so long overdue. I mean, it's like the 95th or 97th parade that's coming up a virtual one. And that would be great. So um, it would be so great, any, you know, yeah, the inclusion, you know, of it's it's a hard thing too for a child to you know to grow up and then seeing just the white version of something. You know, I always I remember at a young age being very confused by that too because I had you know black friends in my neighborhood and stuff like that, and I was just like, where I don't get like why we can't all be inclusive. But it's a great idea, and if the Macy's Parade ever pops off again, I think that that would be a great inclusion for people to see. Um, one of the things too that the book brilliantly captures is like how you know uh films really uh capture that spirit of christmas and one of the films that plays every i believe it's christmas day they play it on repeat is a christmas story and i didn't really know much about a christmas story until i actually married my wife it wasn't something in my we necessarily i think we watched a christmas vacation uh as like the christmas movie so when I married my wife, I wasn't really familiar with Ralphie. And I think I saw that for the first time, maybe 15 years ago. And uh, it has lots of themes in that film that really resonate with me as far as Christmas go, because it's like, like we were mentioning at the beginning of this podcast, Christmas has like two sides of it. It has the spirit of giving and love. And then it also has this, I need to covet something that I shouldn't. And I want something and I need it. And then I finally get it. And then I shoot my eye out. 
Do you think a Christmas story is so lasting because of the themes that are explored in that? Yeah, I, I do. Because um, uh, the thing about it is it, it, it touches on universal themes and themes that you don't, aren't even necessarily related to the holiday. Like I, I, I was a nerdy kid and, uh, but all kids, uh, whether they were, you know, the, the, the most popular kid or the nerdiest uh, kid, um, we all, we all search for uh, what we want to be at, at that very young age. Like, what am I going to be? And you have your role models, models. He has his father and who, you know, uh, and uh, he's getting all kinds of mixed signals. But, uh, and then once he centers on this uh, uh, air rifle that he wants, this Daisy air rifle, BB gun uh, rifle, he <clears throat> decides, I, I want that, I want that, I want that. Really what he's saying is, because um, he's just a kid, he's, he's, you know, he has the fantasy about wearing the cowboy hat and protecting his family from, from uh, thieves. It's, um, it's, it's his kind of fantasy of what, of what maybe he'll be when he grows up or a sense of identity for him. So, and it's all wrapped up in this toy. And then it, it and, and that's what, um, I think it's one of the most touching scenes uh, in a Christmas movie when uh, his father, who didn't ever seem to be listening to him, um, is the one who says like, hey, you missed one present over there, you know, and the mom doesn't even know about it. And, and you realize oh, the father was listening to the kid and, um, mm -hmm. and it came from his father. So it means so much more. So even if you had like a, complicated relationship with your father and who doesn't um that was touched on i mean so much was so it's it's a hell of a movie yeah yeah i, I there's a, a moment in the film that um i mean it's when ralphie his parents first hear him say the f word and i remember in my life uh when my parents first heard me say the f word i was around ralphie's age and my cousin you know those cars used to pull the wheels back and then they'd spin off well he pulled the wheels back and put it on my face and the wheels went and hurt me and i just let out the f word and it was so similar to like watching Ralphie's parents, like you know, react towards that. I didn't get any soup in my mouth, but I mean, I also I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say I don't know what would have happened to me if I let if I let the f word slip in front of my dad because uh, it was a different time. He was a uh, uh, teenager during the depression and a marine during World War II. Oh, wow. I don't think I'd, I'd be living right now, or maybe I'd be e eating my dinners through a straw. Uh, one of the things too that uh, you touch upon in the introduction is uh, a tradition that some people still do to this day and some people don't, but back in the day, it was very common for people to set up their Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. So the children would arrive downstairs and then voila, the tree's there. Do you, do you think that that, like what, like to me, I've heard that from numerous people. Like for me, like my parents had the Christmas tree up, you know, probably the day after Thanksgiving all the way up to the December 25th. Something about that, though, seems more special to me in a way. Was that the way it was always run in your house, that the Christmas tree was set up the day before I Christmas? Th I think that's the way they did it when we were really tiny. And then one year, they got this um, rocking uh, artificial tree that it spun slowly, uh, had uh, these really cool oh, wow. icicles, and then it, and it played. It had a little kind of music box sounding mm -hmm. uh, thing at the bottom, and it played... Jingle Bells and Silent Night, just like quick little cuts of it. And if it ran for a long, long time, you'd think you were in like a Chucky Santa movie. But, um, uh, but we kids loved it. And anyway, the first, the first year we, that they put that up, they, they, they put it up downstairs because it was so complicated. And, um, and it was like a, a week before Christmas, maybe two weeks. Uh, and they said, don't go down there to us. Don't go down there. 
And then um, mm-hmm. one, one day uh, I, I like ran down there by accident. And then I was like, Oh, I didn't want to see it, you know? And then, so we, so we all went down, they brought us all down. I think from then on, they started putting it up. Like you said, like second week of December, you know? And yeah. uh, I like, I mean, like I have my, uh, silver 1950s vintage Christmas tree up, had it up since 2018. Uh, I haven't taken my decorations down because I've been working on this project all that time. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would keep, it would keep me in the spirit, you know? So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm more like, I, I, I love the decorations. Uh, I know it's it, it deferred gratification. It's better to have it on Christmas day alone, mm-hmm. but I just, you know, I just, yeah, for it. me, I'm, I'm, I'd like the tree up like after yeah. Thanksgiving, I like looking at it. I, I we have to have an artificial tree just because of my allergies. But I mean, like something about it. Yeah. It's very special. It warms the house up. It makes everything seem uh, a little bit, you know, brighter. That's I, I, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned that Christmas tree with uh, the, the spinning rotation. I think it, I think that might've came across my table when I was working at oldies.com. I saw something like that in a film and I was just mesmerized by it. Cause it was so well put together, you know, Christmas trees today. I mean, they are extravagant and stuff like that. The idea of a tree inside your house, I mean, we're just so cast conditioned towards it. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to put a tree in my house this, this, you know, in the middle of winter, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when it's, you have to, you know, give it water and stuff like that to keep it alive. Do you, when has, they, I know they traced it back, but the Christmas tree origin, like where does that come from? It, it, that is so interesting. It's um, uh, pre-Christianity civilizations actually, um, viewed the, the evergreen as a sign of, of, um, of not fertility, of, uh, like everlasting life. Um, oh, wow. Uh, because, because it stayed green all year round. So they kind of not worshiped it, but that they regarded that as a symbol. Um, the Christmas trees proper were originated in Germany. I believe it was the 1600s. And even the artificial Christmas tree was um, so so interesting. There was a year where they they had to do uh, they had to do forestation. They had to like clear out forests, and uh, so the trees were more rare that year. So they 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 used goose feathers painted green, so that they could still have that tradition of the tree, which they decorated with you know fruits and nuts and something called sweet meats, which sounds like uh, something from an adult film. Mm. And, and so they put these artificial trees with the go- green painted goose feathers in, and then that's where artificial trees were, um, were invented. And, um, but the, uh, it really became, uh, popularized, uh, in the mainstream, uh, in the, uh, 19th century, uh, during the Victorian era, which is named for, uh, Queen Victoria. Uh, and she, um, famously, uh, it, it, she was of German descent. So she had Christmas trees and her husband was, a, was, was from Germany. And, um, so she, um, had, um, she had a Christmas tree, uh, at her, uh, you know, in, in uh, London and a, a newspaper, uh, I guess pre, pre, uh, photo, photographic reproduction of newspapers did a drawing, a beautiful drawing of her and her family around this Christmas tree oh, wow. Once that was published. Um, it, it, then everybody in England was getting Christmas trees and then the, the practice migrated to, uh, America. That's great. I mean, I've also done some research on like, you know, the various different versions of Christmas and like, you know, I have characters like the Krampus, uh, a couple other ones I, I didn't write down, but I mean, like, uh, it varies in different countries, the perception of Santa Claus. Am I correct on that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, 
Santa Claus got his name from uh, Sinterklaas. Um, uh, Dutch uh, settlers in Manhattan brought that over, and then it, in in uh, in America, the pronunciation got massaged into Santa Claus. And uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, and obviously it all it all you you can there is a through line back to Saint Nicholas. And uh, uh, who um, was a, um, he wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't Santa Claus. He didn't ride on a sled or anything, but he was a do-gooder. He used to do um, uh, clandestine acts of, of philanthropy. He would, uh, uh, one of the stories is he threw uh, bags of uh, gold pieces into the home uh, overnight under cloak of darkness into the house of a, of a man who was so destitute, he was about to sell his daughters into prostitution. So this, this <laughs> so that, that didn't have to happen. And uh, he was his patron, patron saint of children. Mm-hmm. So, and it was, uh, it was probably the, the poem, uh, uh, a visit from St. Nick uh, that we know as um, uh, uh, close the night before Christmas, where they, he, he was really associated with Christmas for the first time. The feast of St. Nicholas was earlier in December mm-hmm. and, and people like, you know, would, would do uh, acts of philanthropy on that day. But then, but then it sort of collided with Christmas and then Sinterklaas became Santa Claus. It's amazing really. Cause it's, it's such an evolution of uh, holiday cheer. Um, one of the things that I've actually touched upon um, on my podcast before is talking about, classic Christmas songs and uh, you know, to be in the room when those songs were recorded, you know, uh, I mean, back in the day recording, it was not pro tools today. It was, you know, you got to get the take. You send sometimes you would have a whole orchestra in the room and you would have a ribbon microphone and you would just, you know, try to get the, the right, you know, chemistry. Some of those songs have lasted so long. I mean, I know Christmas songs today. I mean, there's some that have kind of gotten there. I think Paul McCartney got to the classic level, but, um, my question for you is, what's your favorite Christmas song? Well, um, I guess, I guess uh, in my heart of hearts, it's um, this obscure 70s um, uh, rock uh, song from England that was never played in the States called Merry Christmas, Everybody by a group called Slade. It's just a rocking song. But really, kind of like emotionally, uh, I just love Bing Crosby's White Christmas because it, you know, the funny thing was that when the, the song came out, uh, he first uh, sang it on the radio, Christmas Day, 1941. Of course, um, that really? was, yeah, it was weeks, just weeks after um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, uh, so boys were, um, you know, young, young American boys were being drafted and mostly enlisting in those days. And so um, the song really hit everybody. Like, I dream, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, like the ones I used to know. So it's, it was really a song about like, home and these these boys were going abroad to uh you know defend america and uh they uh uh so the song really resonated so when i hear it i just think of you know all that stuff uh like the song has endured for so long such a great song and his version too Mm -hmm. so is that version you just said the uh the one where he sang live on the radio is that available to be heard i've never i've never heard it um Mm -hmm. he he uh he, there was such demand for it that he cut a record, uh, a recorded version very soon. The one that we know so well from, you know, endless uh, uh, broadcasts is actually um, a redo, which was not uncommon in those days. He re-recorded it, but faithfully, just with better technology, uh, I think in, in like 47, 
if I might, might've been early fifties. Uh, so the one, but it, they're, they're very similar. It's just recorded better. He does that whistle. The solo is him whistling, uh, oh, yeah. which he, which he used to always do. And, um, you know, it's just, like I said, it's just so, um, it's just so sweet and nostalgic and his voice is beautiful. Um, you know, it, it, in that, in that version, you know, it, and oh, of course he's amazing, it. amazing song. Yeah. And like just the way it's recorded too. I mean, like his voice sounds like he's in the room with you when you listen to it. And it was recorded so many years ago. Um, it's just something about those songs and that specific time period encapsulate, encapsulates into the mythology of Christmas. And one would argue, I guess, from my point of perspective is that, you really can't add much to the mythology of Christmas no more. There was like a cutoff point and I'm not really sure when it was, but I mean, like these things came out of that century, you know, like all these, I mean, going all the way back to Haddon, Santa Claus and the Coca-Cola, you know, uh, influence. I feel like they introduced the ideas and then it was like, well, this is now what you got to roll with. Like, I mean, I guess the, the later, it, I guess they added Rudolph, right? When was Rudolph added into the mix? Well, uh, Rudolph as a character uh, came along in 48. It was actually created as a, uh, as a, as a kind of mascot for the Montgomery Ward uh, department store chain. Um, and then uh, uh, a poem was written in a little booklet, boy, would they be worth a lot of money nowadays, was uh, put out that was given to Montgomery Ward customers. And that was really popular. And then they put out a book. And then the music was, uh, I'm sorry, this, the, the poem was set to music and um and then uh gene autry who's a movie cowboy he uh, who had hits he recorded it and it was a number one hit not for a long time but uh it was a number one hit the year might have been 1950 on the nose or yeah. 49 maybe 49 and uh and then ever since like you know bing crosby covered it and just you know so many people covered it you know, but that's, uh, but yeah, it started out as, as a, talk about marketing and capitalism, started out as a, as a department store chain mascot. And it's amazing. Um, I'm experiencing Christmas again through the eyes of my four-year-old son each year, you know, like, uh, and it, you know, when you don't, it's interesting to watch it happen again and like, you know, the excitement of Christmas and stuff like that. And like my version of uh, Santa Claus is much different than his version of Santa Claus. In fact, his version of Santa Claus, <clears throat> excuse me, is Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. Kurt Russell is his Santa Claus. There's a Netflix film, and uh, I'm, I recommend it to you. I mean, uh, it's called The Christmas Chronicles. Came out last year, and he plays a slimmed down, sexy version of Santa Claus. And uh, it's just so crazy to me because I, I think I was watching, uh, I don't know what it was, maybe it was Overboard one night and my son comes in the room and he points at the TV. He's like Santa Claus. And it just really just tripped my wife up. And I bet he associates Santa Claus now with Kurt Russell. Um, it's amazing how like, you know, it, it can trickle down through generations and generations. And, you know, as you brilliantly, you know, you mentioned in the book too, that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, Christian Catholic to experience Christmas. You know, it, it's a state of being, and, you know, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of the book. Um, so many different things in, the, in this uh, wonderful spread that you can have shipped to your doorstep on November 4th. Uh, one of the things that I've never seen in the collection, too, that the reader will love is the New Yorker covers. Like, they were amazing. Like, the way that, that – that, who was the artist behind that? 
Well, there are a lot, <clears throat> a lot of artists um, that did those covers. Um, they're all, they're all identified. Um, yeah. You're referring to a, a section on uh, that. I have a, a magazine covers, Amazing. which, which go back to the, the 1800s, you know, Amazing, um, yeah. Hawk, you know, and, but yeah, the, and, and of course the interesting thing about the New Yorker, um, the covers is uh, they, they, they do one every year. It's a weekly and it really is a time capsule, you know? So the last, um, the last one I show, I, I, I guess I show maybe five or six of them. Mm-hmm. The last one I show is, um, was from the late sixties and it's um, hippies uh, wandering through, uh, it was a watercolor of, um, you know, shiny uh, hippies uh, waltzing through uh, Central Park on a snowy day. So it's just like, it, it sort of captures even like that grooviness. So yeah, there, there are definitely a, uh, those kind of covers and all magazine covers uh, you'll notice in that section are like time capsules of, uh, of, of when, I mean, one of the most famous Christmas covers was by Norman Rockwell for the Saturday Evening Post, and it was at the height of uh, mm-hmm. World War II. And it's a brilliant painting. It's uh, a, a, the front page of a newspaper, and everything is about bombing and Nazis and, and uh, the war. But Santa Claus is like bursting through, and, uh, and uh, it, he's saying like, you know, Merry Christmas. This is the message is like, they remind people. Yeah. Don't forget to have a good Christmas, you know, even though the world, the world is so horrible right now. Yeah. Christmas kind of like, like now. Yeah, it is. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, one thing is for certain, though, the, the, the spirit of Christmas will still endure past uh, whatever happens uh, in this year's election. Um, Christmas, though, is such a, uh, an amazing uh, time of year. I'm super stu- So it took you the better part of, what, two, three years to write this? I, um, I would say it was like 14 months. Um, to do the um, the book proper, and um, and then little things like the front cover, the back cover, and even the spine, uh, which you haven't seen yet, but it's really cool. Um, th- those those also take a lot of time. That's post production. Um, so and my my end papers, you know. So so uh, yeah, I would say um, I would say two two years, you know, uh, from from the time I started. Yeah, actually, because I started in December 2018. Um, so yeah, but 14 months to do the book proper. If, if I'm, um, you know, if I'm cogent and, uh, energetic. So for 14 months, you've been celebrating Christmas. Like that's yep. <laughs> what's up. That's eating, those, uh, little, eating those little De- Debbie uh, Christmas tree cakes. Yeah, man. This little Debbie Christmas tree. <laughs> so, so was the book completed during COVID or like in the month of March? Like, were you still working up until recently? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I was still working. Um, of course there's, 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 you know, I want to keep it timeless. Um, uh, just like with monster mash and groovy, I wanted to make it seem like it was produced in that era and bring you back to that era. So, um, you know, the president isn't mentioned, COVID isn't mentioned. Um, um, but I, my, a little, uh, slogan came up recently that, um, uh, um, uh, kind of mentions, kind of refers to it. And so I've been using it, um, make Christmas merry again. But um, uh, that won't, that slogan can't be used past 2020. So, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, so, so I've just been living it and uh, it's, it's been a blast. And uh, I thought maybe I would overdose, but nope. Yeah. I'm still psyched for Christmas this year. There's not enough eggnog to drink to make you overdose uh, on Christmas. Yeah, it, it, I, I'm super stoked for you. I think that people are really going to enjoy this book. Um, each time you come back on the show, you bring something new and exciting. I imagine somewhere in your vernacular right now, you're planning your next uh, masterpiece. 
Yeah, I got an idea. Um, I don't have a publisher. I've actually started it. I'm about halfway done the design. Uh, but you know, I, I always tell you, Bob, I'm Irish and superstitious. You're, you're actually the first, the Bobcast is where I actually spill these things. So I, I just need to work on it some more, but I got something uh, that, that uh, Simon and Sue Schuster and a couple other publishers have t- already turned down. I'm going to, I'm going to bring it into existence somehow. You know, I'm sure you will. I mean, that's just the thing. I mean, it's, you can see all the work produced behind you. I mean, these books that come out, they're, they're lovely coffee table books. I mean, they're, they're super colorful. There's a lot of information in there. Um, I, I especially, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it, but I, I love the intro section. I never knew that you had such a large family to experience Christmas like that. I think people um, of all ages will enjoy this book. Um, Thank you. Looking back at the nostalgia, looking back at all the covers and looking about looking back at Christmas and how it affects you on such a deep subconscious level that you don't even know. I mean, for me, I, I have a weird connection with Santa Claus and Coca-Cola. I kind of want a Coca-Cola can beverage right now after talking with Mark Luger for the last hour. Um, I always do. I, I, it's funny too, is uh, back in the day, like when you got sick, lots of people thought that the remedy was uh, a warm Coca-Cola. <laughs> was that in your family too as well? Oh yeah. They had this um, a concoction that they would pour into a um, spoon and give it to you. And it tasted like warm Coca-Cola. I forget what it was. I yeah. haven't seen it in 60, 40, uh, 50 years, but it was, uh, we were like, oh, well, at least we get to drink that Coca-Cola medicine, you know. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I want to just say uh, thanks again um, for coming back on the show. And uh, I'll thank you once again for helping me mold my uh, idea of pop culture at a young age, helping me uh, learn how to draw. And I mean, I was I, like experiencing this way back in the 80s where you would send me these brilliant covers. You worked for, um, I believe it was the Ashbury uh, Park Press. And uh, you would do these full page spreads, man, that were just, the color is what really attracted to me towards like that pop culture vibe. And uh, yeah, I'm eternally grateful for uh, those packages that you sent me back in the day because it helped mold me in a way, just like, you know, all these elements of Christmas have helped molded the book Holly Jolly. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And, but you know, you were always you. Uh, And and I I just want to mention, um, that you, you can get Holly Jolly. I just wanted to say it's um, available on uh, Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Target, Walmart, and the publisher is <clears throat> Two Morrows, T-W-O Morrows, also .com, you know. So it's, it's everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> they're even selling it at uh, W.H. Smith in England, which, wow. which, prob- which probably carried the original novel, A Christmas Carol, because <clears throat> they've been around since before Dickens. So... So it's, it's around and, um, uh, yes, I very much enjoyed hanging with you, uh, you know, uh, again. We'll and, do it again. Uh, yeah. Thanks brother. Yes. Make sure you pick up the book, Holly Jolly written by Mark Boger. I mean, it's amazing. If you, if you have a parent, you don't know what to get them. Make sure you purchase this book today, put it in their stocking. Will it fit in the stocking or will it fit under the tree? Uh, more, more under the tree situation. Let's put it under the tree this year for <laughs> your folks. Um, Mark, always a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see you next time in the lounge, brother. My name's Bob, and this has been another episode of Bobcast.